I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Arsenic poisoning. A deadly condition presents a sinister threat to human health. Arsenic, a natural occurring element, is found in various forms in the environment. It can contaminate water sources, food, and even the air we breathe. The effects of arsenic poisoning are insidious, often creeping in unnoticed until irreversible damage has been done. When a person is exposed to elevated levels of arsenic over a prolonged period, the toxin wreaks havoc on the body's vital systems. It interferes with cellular metabolism, disrupting crucial biochemical processes. Initially, the symptoms might be subtle, ranging from nausea and abdominal pain to skin discoloration and fatigue. As the poison progresses, more severe manifestations arise. The cardiovascular system bears a heavy burden as arsenic poisoning can lead to irregular heart rhythms, hypertension and even heart failure. The respiratory system too faces assault with arsenic damaging lung tissue and causing respiratory distress. Neurological symptoms emerge, including numbness and tingling in extremities, confusion and seizures. Over time, the cumulative impact of arsenic poisoning becomes increasingly dire. Vital organs such as the liver and kidneys struggle to detoxify and eliminate the poison, leading to their dysfunction. Anemia, weakened immune function, and increased susceptibility to infections further contribute to the patient's deteriorating condition. The body's resilience is gradually eroded, leaving the patient unable to fight off the toxic onslaught. The complexity of arsenic poisoning lies not only in its diverse range of symptoms, but also in its ability to mimic other illnesses, delaying accurate diagnosis and intervention. Ultimately, the grim culmination of arsenic poisoning can lead to multi-organ failure and death. Welcome to I Can Murder a Podcast, episode number nine of series eight. We are back again. We are back with what Ben likes to say, a big, big case. And uh, yeah, Ben, how the devil are you, pal? Yeah, doing really well, thank you. Doing really well. I always get a bizarre buzz of energy when we go back in time to the olden days cases, uh, which we have done this week. I believe that's the term, isn't it? Olden days cases. Um, And so, yeah, feeling super excited to do a bit of time traveling today. I don't know if that would be necessarily my superpower of choice, but it would certainly rank up there. How, How are you doing, Dan? 
Uh, very good, thanks. Yeah, I'm very excited to go back into the past. So, uh, And I'm also excited to give you a little riddle to kick off the old episode. Ooh. So, yeah, very good. Love that, love that. Dan said if he had a superpower, it'd be Bernard's watch. I said, what would you do with it? And he went, you know. And I was like, okay, that's a bit weird. And yes, we hope you guys enjoyed the Amazon review killer case. And also, guys, keep an eye because I've been working away on a little bit of merch that will be popping up on our store very soon. It's funky. Um, I don't know if that's spoiling things, but it's certainly funky. Is that spoiling things? I hope not. And no one likes a, a, a funky spoil. Uh, um, I, I think yeah, the word funky I haven't heard in a long time. So, um, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like an edgy mum. So, um, yeah, it, it's. I, I want to say it's. Uh, it's. I was going to say nifty. That's just as bad. How old are we? Yeah. Um, you're like this, Dan. Dan, someone I know um, who listened to the podcast said you're the young guy. Oh, first time. Yeah, first time. Oh, wow. They're based on visuals it. rather than audio. Oh. Is that's better though? I guess so. Yeah, I'm, yeah. yeah, it is better. <laughs> I'm happy with that. Thank you. Brilliant. Yeah, that's just for you know, build, build you up a little bit there. Um, they call Ben the dad of the podcast, which was which was cute. Factually incorrect, but fine. <laughs> cute though. Yeah. yeah, I'll take it. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I don't think yeah, I don't think anyone thought you actually were our dad. Um, but yes, Dan, have you got your your? I can say little riddle. Have you got your riddle ready? I've got my riddle ready, and I've also got a cheeky jingle for the riddle. Ooh. So do you want to hear it? Yeah. Yes. Um, here it comes. Dan's riddle sly and mischievous grim Twist and turn and mind game to win Puzzles are plenty a chuckle or two A laugh and thought we find our clue Riddles! <laughs> Goodness gracious me I took me. the biggest sip of coffee before it <laughs> just Never knew that when he's, time. Got, when he's got a jingle ready Never oh, take a sip That was it. Was also Was the instruments your voice as well? <laughs> At the start the <laughs> I wish it was that was fantastic. That was, that was Pingu's dad. Um, <laughs> no, that was really good. I like that a lot. Wow. I'm going to have to listen to it again in my own time. Sorry but, um, yeah. big The fan Riddle of that. Man and the Jingle Man. He's got, he's got it all. He's yeah, got yeah, all yeah. the alls. Yeah, I'm a lucky boy. Right. <clears throat> riddle number two. Again, uh, quite easy. Uh, you might get it straight away, but shh, don't tell anybody. A man decides to go to sleep after an exhausting long day of work. He turns off all the lights and goes to sleep. When he wakes up, he finds out that he's killed 105 sailors. He does not sleepwalk and has slept all night without waking up once. How is this possible? Oh, yeah, I've got that. Still thinking about the jingle. Don't think I've time to repeat it, but... Um, you got it, Ben? Because it's, um, you know, quite straightforward. No, I, I really was still thinking about the jingle, so I'll come in with a, a, a wavy guess at the, towards the end of the episode, maybe. Perhaps. Great stuff. Love it. <laughs> Dan's riddle sly and mischievous grim. Twist and turn and mind game to win. Puzzles are plenty, a chuckle or two. A laugh and thought we find our clue. Riddles! I love the show at the end. That's <laughs> my favourite bit. But yes, wow. Ben, can you introduce today's case? So this week is the case of Lady Rotten, Mary Ann Cotton, also referred to as Britain's first serial killer, which we'll, we'll dissect that a little bit more in the episode today. The Dark Angel, England's forgotten serial killer, the Black Widow Murders, and The Wicked Witch of Durham. Uh, I did come up with that last one all oh, yeah. by myself. I yeah. thought the way you emphasise witch was probably witch. something. Yeah, maybe that was a bit, bit of you there. But yeah, it's a very interesting case. Again, not one that I was too familiar with, but yeah, I like Lady Rotten. Um, I was like, oh, that's, mm. that's curious. But yes, um, Dan, are you going to set the scene for us here? I bloody am. Ooh. Mary Ann Cotton, a chilling figure from the pages of true crime history, was a master of deception and darkness. With an innocent facade that hid her sinister intentions, she roamed through a 19th century England, leaving behind a trail of death, disbelief and despair. 
Mary Ann's almost two dozen unsuspecting victims, including husbands, her many children, and even her mother, fell victim to her devious plots as she used poison to send them to an early grave. The true horror lies not only in the extent of her crimes, but in her ability to manipulate trust and loyalty for her own ghastly pleasures. Mary Ann Cotton's legacy remains, to date, a haunting reminder of the depths to which human evil can rapidly descend. So I think, yeah, even from that very chilling, very spooky, um, I think there's there's so much here that you can understand. I mean, even the, the, even the individual's birthday, which we'll go on to, uh, very spooky, very haunting. And you know we've gone back far uh, in the annals of time when there's a nursery rhyme uh, written about uh, this week's leading figure of the case. Uh, and I thought, why not start this week's episode, not only with producer Dan uh, setting the scene and a lovely riddle, but why not get Tom to read a couple of lines from this particular nursery rhyme as it's it's gruesome. So you haven't made this up? This is actually a thing? Yeah. Oh, wow. No. I mean, I can, I can do a nursery rhyme for next week's case, if you, if you like. I did one for uh, the Fred and Rose West case, didn't I? You did, yes. You did a indeed. spooky little intro for that. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Mary Ann Cotton, she's dead and forgotten. Lying in beds with her bones all rotten. Sing, sing, what can I sing? Mary Ann Cotton tied up with string. Where, where? She's up in the air, selling her black puddings a penny a pair. Wow. Wow. I did make a note for that to be spooky and chilling and a little bit scary, and I have got hairs on the back of my neck. Tingling. And a hard-on, so it's like a bit confusing, wow. but we were, you know... We've all been there, right? Yeah. So scared, you horny? <laughs> Get off! <laughs> uh. Uh, but we're back in the 19th century, finally, uh, and this week's case has a little bit of everything, as Tom said. We've covered H.H. H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper on the podcast previously, but as is widely reported, and obviously we mentioned here, England's forgotten serial killer, which I think is a fair comment, um, she seems to go under the radar a little bit or certainly overshadowed by those cases in particular. And especially when you start to look at this case and dig a little bit deeper into her story, it's kind of hard to understand how this isn't a more, you know, widely established case. Uh, we've also obviously covered Nanny Doss, which there's a lot of similarities yeah. there. And uh, Leonardo Cianciulli, the soap lady uh, of Italy, who again, although these crimes took place many years after Marianne Cotton, seem to have gained a little more widespread notoriety. So there's a load of similarities in this week's case. And it's it's a, it's a real fascinating one. Um, and yeah, I always find the sort of 19th century ones or early um, 1900s to be, yeah, particularly fascinating. It always feels a lot, obviously, less close to the home, obviously, with time between it, but also just the kind of the way these stories are told. It always feels very alien to you. So, like, I think it's very unnerving to do a case that we've got well, a lot of cases we've covered, which happened within, you know, our lifetimes. But when you go all this way back, it just feels like a little bit further away where you feel slightly less spooked out. It does feel like more like a myth and a legend and a more of a horror story rather than actually something that's recently happened. Yeah, despite how well you read that nursery rhyme, I do feel safe. I don't feel like... Oh, you watch out. <laughs> Giggle sounded a bit haunted there. Um, although I do feel safe, I do... Yeah, this this has got a lot of nightmarish elements to, to the case as well. So please, obviously, sleep well. Uh, if you're listening to this just before bed, take care of yourself and uh, maybe turn the volume down a little bit because the remainder of that nursery rhyme will be read by Tom at the end of the episode. Ooh, looking forward to that. So we've got a riddle coming up. We've got the rest of the nursery rhyme coming up. Stay with us. Retention! Yeah, stay with us. Don't you go anywhere or pause it and come back, but really just play it through. And you've also got TTs to look forward to. So, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, boy. <laughs> <laughs> right again. <laughs> Damn. Anyway... We're going to get into the early life of Mary Ann Cotton. How did she become 
Cotton. Well, let's do it. Mary Ann Cotton was born Mary Ann Robson on the night of Halloween, 1832. I told you this was a spooky one. In the small village of Low Morsley,、uh, which was in County Durham, but it is now forming part of Horton Le Spring in the city of Sunderland.、Ooh. Isn't it funny how land changes or borders change? City.、Uh, like many children born in. <laughs> I just got it. It is funny. Yeah, thanks, man. Like many children born in lower class England during the mid 1800s, her childhood was most certainly not a happy one. Mary Ann was the first of three children born to Margaret and Michael Robson, a pair who married when they were both 19. The couple would go on to have two more children together a girl named Margaret, who would sadly pass away from illness after just a few months of being born, as well as a boy named Robert, who was born just a year after Margaret's passing in 1835. Mary Ann was just a year and a half old at the time of her baby's sister's passing, so whilst it is unlikely that she was directly impacted by this trauma at the time, it certainly impacted her parents and marked the first in a line of what would become a series of tragedies for the family. And unfortunately for the lower class families of the time, which we'll, we'll kind of get into a bit more,、uh, infant death was quite a common occurrence. So, yeah, really, really sad start for the family. For many of her and her siblings' early years, the family encountered financial difficulties, instability, and were on the borderline of poverty. Her family often moved around, searching for work opportunities and a better life, which meant that Mary Ann experienced constant upheaval whilst growing up and regularly had to readjust, causing her to often lose the very few friendships that she had managed to form as a result. These frequent relocations likely disrupted her education and social stability. Whilst the family's continued financial struggles meant that Mary Ann's parents did not have the resources for proper schooling or healthcare for their children. That aside, Mary Ann had a very unremarkable childhood in comparison to many other serial killers that we have covered. The family's fortunes changed when her father, Michael, who initially worked as a labourer and was listed as a pitman on her birth certificate, later was promoted to the role of colliery sinker. Which is basically someone who helps to create vertical mine shafts. Oh, a sinker, pitman, pitman to a sinker. <laughs> so, so the pitman to a sinker. <laughs> like many men from working-class families of the time, Michael would work extensive hours down the coal mines and would often be away from the family for days at a time, whilst her mother Margaret would stay at home to raise her children as well as cook, clean, and care for the growing family. So, yeah, just to kind of clarify the time, it wasn't really a, a really happy position for a woman to be a wife of a miner. You were seen as very much, you know, you'd raise the kids, you'd、um, make the food for the, for the man when he got home, make sure the bath was ready. It was. Really,、uh, not a lot of time for yourself. It was literally you were there just to be a caregiver. Some people, I'm sure, would have been, you know, happy with that. But some people would look at it maybe thinking it wasn't a particularly fulfilling role. So yeah, Marianne's、um, mother Margaret, you know, Marianne would be would be witnessing this, and in the back of her mind thinking perhaps this wouldn't be the life that she wanted for herself. So when her father was home from work, he was said to have been much like his wife, profoundly religious and a very strict disciplinarian. With young Marianne and Robert living in fear of him. The family were strict Methodists, and they raised their family to be God-fearing, believing that any hardships coming their way had come directly from their God. Both parents were allegedly physically abusive of their children for the slightest possible infraction.、Mm. This is unrelated. Do, do you guys know、uh, <laughs> why Cornish pasties came around? No, no. So you know the crust around the sides. They would put down the mines. People with coal over their hands would eat using the crust. They eat the middle bit and then throw the crust away. It's more like a handle,、oh. like a crusty little handle to eat my, down the mines.、Wow. Yeah, my guess was going to be that it was designed as something to keep a full meal contained. But... Yeah, because mince and taters in there, and then yeah. yeah, you'd have a little handle which was the side of it, and you throw it away. Kind of want one now. You want a Ginsters? 
<laughs> I want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Ginsters. <laughs> I really enjoy some... <laughs> When I'm at the petrol station and I want a snack that doesn't really quite deliver, I go for Ginsters. <laughs> anyway, back to it. Uh, coal mine. But seriously, if they are interested, Ginsters, you know, email I'll just, like, just like them off a little bit. So that, yeah. yeah, they won't be interested. <laughs> nah. um, so coal mining in northern England during the late 19th century was absolutely thriving in terms of the demand. With British coal field maps showing favour the further north you went, though the conditions and methods of mining were considered ghastly and primitive. Men, women, and even young children would spend up to 12 hours a day in the mines, putting themselves at great physical risk in return for a very measly wage. Life expectancy for coal miners at the time was 50, with 25% of the miners dying before the age of 34. So yeah, it's a very dangerous place to be, as you can imagine. Mary Ann's father's role as a sinker was considered highly skilled, and so he was paid a good deal better than many of the other miners. With the higher pay did come higher risk and the coal mining industry often brought inconsistent income and harsh living conditions. Yeah, I've got, got a whole lot of extra information here about coal mines because, yeah, the more I found out about coal mines of the time, the more fascinating it became. So the environment of coal mines was extremely poor, and any workers entering the mines immediately placed themselves in a very dangerous position. The tunnels, which were sometimes propped up with wood, often collapsed, causing multiple deaths and cave-ins. Ventilation was atrocious, causing coughing fits and blackouts. The miners would occasionally come into contact with dangerous gases that existed naturally underground, including a very fatal gas, very fatal gas, uh, known as fire damp. Uh, so yeah, bad things, bad things down the mine sometimes. And an entire spectrum of different lung diseases are now listed as a result of the various dusts that people would inhale from deep within the mines, and they're referred to as CMDLD, coal mine dust lung diseases. If you were lucky enough to avoid all of that, you would still have to deal with the working conditions on a daily basis. Conditions of the coal mines were terrible. Women and children were employed specifically to pull wagons of coal from deep within the mines all the way up to the mine's entrance. And these workers were uh, far smaller, so they were able to get into far more difficult areas and also far more cheaper uh, than what would normally be used, which was a properly trained horse. Uh, so the costs were obviously cut where possible. As well as this, underground working temperatures get very, very, very hot, so it would not be uncommon for these people to work more or less naked, often scraping and cutting their bodies, leaving them prone to infection. Families would often work the mines together in a team, which yeah, I absolutely did not know about this, and the amount that they would be paid would often be entirely dependent on the amount of coal that they brought up to the surface, with all the money going to the collier, uh, which in this case obviously was Marianne's father. It would be quite common to get two shillings a day, which is basically 10 pence a day per person, uh, which is in today's world the spending equivalent of £1.25 per day, uh, which is, yeah, which is crazy. The Collier's contracts of employment as well, despite all the risk involved and despite the, the, the environment they'd be working in, was never often agreed to more than a year. So they'd always sign up for a year's long contract pretty much or, or, or six months or or a half a season, I imagine. Um, <laughs> I'm not working in COS. <laughs> I just did the summer season this year. Down the mind. So, yeah, so there's a lot of basically high risk and little reward, um, even if you had a sort of higher held position like uh, uh, Marianne's father did. Uh, so, yeah, so the contracts would never be agreed from uh, sort of more than a year or to exceed a year. And so mining engineers from all over the country would often roam into new towns and villages in search of work, ready and eager to replace those who either died 
or could no longer work. So yeah, even even if you were injured, say you broke a bone or you were very bloodied, um, there would be a number of people waiting to take your place. The mines drew many thousands of strangers in from remote parts of the UK, all of whom were keen to sell their labour, which added massively to the sense of rootlessness at the time. Yeah, that's crazy in terms of how little the pay was. I mean, I've watched a lot of documentaries before which had miners involved in it, and families who descended from miners and coming from mining towns and in the UK and there's a lot of pride with it as well and people were very proud of, proud of doing that work you know back breaking work for hours upon hours and apparently the community feel was very you know part of it as well but yeah it, it does seem obviously I mean a lot of people are doing it because there literally was no other work for them to do but um, yeah it's horrible conditions due to all the things that we have mentioned about the grim reality of working in the mines many men turn to religion or alcohol in order to cope with their lifestyle and the possibility of it all ending suddenly Quite a poignant quote from the British historian Arthur Bryant on lower class families at this time is as follows. British families in this situation were often fighting a long, losing battle with poverty, undernourishment and insecurity, the risk of accident and maiming, the rot of body and soul, and the dread of the workhouse at the end of that bitter road. So we talked about it a little bit in our Jack the Ripper episode, but it seemed like everything at the time was trying to kill you. Poverty, illness, malnourishment, disease, accidents and people. Remember Ben's lovely little fact about exploding teeth, which... Ouch. Yeah, ouch. That's when the um, interesting facts were quite... But um, growing up in a working-class environment, Mary Ann and her brother Robert faced economic hardships and very limited opportunities. From the records that are available, she had a minimal formal education, with some articles noting that she was homeschooled by her mother and was also likely exposed to the harsh realities of life from a young age with some speculating that her, her brother and her mother would on occasion join the father working down the coal mines when money became even tighter. However, in late 1840, after Marianne turned eight years old, fortunes seemed to change once again. The family moved from Low Morsley to another small, uh, what is known as a, a pit village, so you had Pitman and Pit Village, in County Durham called Merton, and they moved there for her father Michael to help with the opening of a number of new shafts in a local coal mine. This gave Mary Ann and her brother Robert the opportunity to attend Wesleyan Methodist Sunday School, uh, which is basically located on the outskirts of Merton every single week. And whilst attending, the school superintendent described Mary Ann as follows. A most exemplary and regular attender. She is a girl of innocent disposition and average intelligence. She is distinguished for her particularly clean and tidy appearance and long flowing black hair. She comes from a dedicated family who are devout members of their church's congregation. So yeah, on this particular quote, though there is not much on record about her childhood, many do remark or, or make note of the fact that despite her family's poor and unstable nature, she was said to have been an immaculately presented young girl with many other children and, later in life, men, finding her to be particularly beautiful. She easily attracted attention, something that would follow her as she grew older. Not long after the family had moved to Merton, tragedy struck them once again. Did I get it right or not? They did, yeah. Tragedy. When you go to the mine and you fall down, tragedy. Not long after the family had moved to Merton, tragedy struck them once again. And this time it struck Marianne's father, Michael. On the morning of February 23rd, 1842, whilst Michael was making his way deeper into the Merton coilery in order to repair a pulley wheel, the wooden planks beneath him suddenly gave way causing him to plummet almost 46 metres, or over 150 feet, down an open mine shaft, dying immediately upon impact. As perhaps was a sign of the times, Michael's body was eventually recovered, placed into a large coal sack, 
which had the words property of the South Hetton Coal Company stamped on it. And it was then delivered to the family. See, it's kind of hard to imagine that grizzly scene, you know, you're hearing your father's passing and probably the first thing you hear about it is actually seeing his body being returned and obviously falling on such a height as well, his mangled body being returned in a hessian sack to your door. It's, uh, yes, that's obviously something that would have heavily impact anyone in that situation. But Marianne, I think that's something that stuck, stuck with her as well. That kind of living that lifestyle, that kind of day-to-day living um, stayed with her for a long time. So from this moment onwards, Marianne and her brother were raised by their mother, Margaret, who is now a widow, who was also in a state of shock and battle and depression. Margaret found it more and more difficult to look after herself, as well as her two children, as the weeks and months went on. To this point, the family had been living in a small cottage on the outskirts of the coal mine, but as this cottage was provided to them as a result of Michael's employment, they were swiftly asked to leave the property before funeral arrangements could even be made. After they were evicted, the family dynamic became more and more unstable, with Marianne desperate to escape a life of poverty, even at such a young age. So yeah, you that's get, really sad. Not even got the funeral together, and you're getting told, getting kicked out. Uh, so I did, I did have a little look online uh, because apparently this situation that the family now found themselves in was not uncommon, uh, and there was some financial relief available to widows or families that were impacted in such a way by the loss of a loved one. However, these were incredibly strict in their restrictions. So for women of the working class, the sudden death or loss of a husband could easily throw them into devastating poverty with little way out, or it could force both the widow as well as her children into workhouses, which obviously was mentioned in producer Dan's quote there, causing them to be separated, uh, which may be why Mary Ann's mother Margaret quickly went on the search for a new husband. Um, so essentially she was grieving she was battling depression they had been evicted but at the same time she was thinking if i can quickly remarry then it may put me in a position where i don't go on to even further poverty and the the possibility of losing her children so this period of her life as well as all of the kind of trauma that she's experienced may have exposed a young marianne to the idea of life insurance payouts for the very first time so Marianne, her mother and brother lived with relatives for the following year until her mother Margaret met and quickly became involved with a man named George Stott in 1843, who was, interestingly, also a miner. The age was, you're talking about? No, no, works in a coal mine, oh, professionally. Maybe Margaret, I thought, you know, of all these minor partners that she's got digging away, maybe, my, maybe Margaret was the diamond jewel that all of these miners were digging for. They're coal miners, weren't they? Yeah, but you can find sort of... A diamond in the rough, can't you? Is that the, how the old saying goes? Yep. A diamond in the rough. So maybe, maybe there was something about Margaret that attracted miners digging to her heart, her heart's foundation. I'd like to see a Valentine's card written by you, because it would be Just, very yeah. convoluted. <laughs> yeah, but that's a good way to say love Digging around, message. around towards her heart. <laughs> oh, I, I found this for you. It's a rose, uh, you never know what's around the corner. <laughs> Chocolate's made. <laughs> well, in this case, they didn't need a Ben Carter Valentine card. The couple married after just two months of courting uh, or dating, uh, with Marianne quickly taking a dislike to her new stepfather. Now, there are allegations that George... Uh, kind of like uh, her biological father was regularly verbally and physically abusive of Marianne and her brother. But uh, unlike her biological father, there are also allegations that George sexually abused her on five different occasions. And by this point, Marianne is just 11 years old. So yeah, obviously, as, as Ben was mentioning, in terms of the fear of, of going into the workhouses and, you know, the family being split up, um, Marianne's mother had the choice of 
as we think, you know, get into a marriage quickly with someone to, in order for that to be prevented. But she was put in a very difficult position, as I'm sure a lot of families were in, the, in those times. So, but yeah, after two months, it does it does seem very quick. But at the same time, she has just been evicted out of her house. And yeah, with two children to look after, it does put her in a particularly difficult position. Yeah, definitely. And they're obviously still grieving the loss of their her husband and their father. It's, yeah, it's not a nice position to be in whatsoever. And again, these are allegations regarding mm. George, but did she really know who he was and, uh, you know, what his values were and how he would be with, with uh, uh, welcoming her children? Her new stepfather, George, did not like Marianne very much. And it was clear that the feeling was mutual. As a result, even from as young as the age of 12, she began looking for a means of escaping her childhood home, despite the fact that she actually only had a home due to the fact that her, her mother had become involved or married to George in the first place. His salary had kept her and her family from becoming homeless and destitute, though this seemed to matter little to Mary Ann. She learned at an early age that, in order to avoid the miserable fate of her nightmares, she had to keep a steady flow of money coming her way, no matter what the method. And yeah, at this point, she's, what, 11, 12? She's already thinking of ways to get out of that family home. So that would maybe constitute the, the rumours that he was abusive and, and not very kind to the family. Five years later, when Marianne turned 16, she made the decision to immediately leave the family home. This decision was put down to the constant conflict with her stepfather by Marianne herself, though it is also believed that she relocated due to an offer of a job as a live-in nursemaid in the nearby village of South Hetton. Yeah, I did check on South Hatton to see if that was also a pit village, but um, just said village. Maybe it was a nursemaid village. Yeah. A nursemaid essentially cleaned and cooked whilst taking care of the children. Here she would work and live at the home of Edward Potter, who was actually the colliery manager at the coal mine that her father died in. So she would stay here for the next three years looking after Edward's 12 children before, over the course of the three years, they were each sent to attend private boarding schools in Darlington. Many believe that, due to how poorly she was treated by the Potter children in this role, this is where Marianne first developed her hatred for children. Once the children had left Edward Potter's home, Marianne was no longer required. She had then made the decision to return to the family home back in Merton, and began training as, and eventually taking up work as, a dressmaker. So it's, it's worth noting as well that the Potter's home was a really nice home. Um, she was getting used to kind of the life of living in a nice house, having nice things, access to nice things. And also just living like a class above what she was used to. So she got very used to that, very comfortable within that life. And it really highlighted, you know, I want this for myself. I don't want to be living back as I did as a child. So Marianne had a dream set of making a huge amount of money, becoming a dressmaker. And during the years away from the family home, Marianne became fascinated with different medications and health remedies of the time, which were readily available in the large family home of the Potters. This also potentially exposed her for the first time to arsenic which in the 19th century, the compounds of which were used sometimes for the treatment of such diseases as diabetes, psoriasis, syphilis, skin ulcers, and joint diseases. Uh, Marianne, who was now 19, would stay with her family for the next year and a half, but still live with absolute disdain for her stepfather, whom she believed to have been abusing her mother and her younger brother. It is alleged that he would attempt to abuse Marianne, but she responded aggressively to this, threatening to tell her mother, which caused her stepfather to back off. Marianne now found herself in a bind, she knew that the only way to escape the dynamic of the family home would be to find a live-in work opportunity, or to marry. And with the growing lack of jobs available that met her criteria, I mean, as Tom said, she became very comfortable in the Potter family house. She, she became 
she felt a desire to belong in that class of society but she then obviously saw around her that the only jobs available were very laborious and that was something that she absolutely wasn't interested in uh, but at the same time it was either that or find yourself a husband and you know move in with him so Marianne decided that uh, of the two options available she was going to find herself a husband but there seemed to be something brewing beneath the surface this entire time, and this is something that would remain hidden only to Marianne for the next 21 years. Armed with a resentment for poverty, a hatred for her stepfather, a desire to escape the family home, as well as her limited knowledge on both medicine and life insurance, Marianne hatched a plan. A plan that would lead her to become allegedly the first British serial killer in history, as well as one of the world's most forgotten serial killers. And I thought, being allegedly one of the first or certainly one of the most forgotten uh, serial killers in history, I thought that is, wow, that's interesting. That's seriously interesting you ask me. I wish someone would do a segment on it. Push me in, throw me in. There we go, pushing you in. Get out of here, you Ben Carter's Interesting Facts. Oh, you've been pushed out, mate. Sorry. Ben Carter's Interesting Facts. Interesting Facts. It, it keeps pushing you back out again. That's weird, man. We don't have to do this, Ben, if you don't want to. So um, should, we, should we move on? Here we go. Ben Carter's Interesting Facts. Interesting Facts. Welcome back. Welcome back. Happy uh, week or weekend day to you. Hope uh, one and all is doing well. Hope everyone's having a lovely summer so far. Um, yeah. And I thought, yeah, there's a lot of lot of interesting things going really on summer, in, thank in, you. in the case this week. Fantastic. We're, we're, we're always happy to hear that. Uh, hopefully the sun yeah, uh, decides bad, to you. join us. Great. Really good to hear that. Yeah. And I mean, uh, uh, as we've mentioned, a lot of things that pop up when you search Marianne Cotton is uh, she's the first serial killer. She's the most forgotten serial killer. Um, and, you know, people forget things. People forget a lot of things. And uh, people have seemingly forgotten about another individual buried in the annals of criminal history. Today, we're talking about the Muffin Man. So today, the team at BC's IFs, which unfortunately is now just me, uh, we've had to make some cutbacks uh, in order to pay for Dan's new riddle jingle. Uh, today we ask, was the Muffin Man nursery rhyme actually a warning to kids about a 16th century brutal serial killer? You know the rhyme. Do you know the Muffin Man? The Muffin Man? The Muffin Man? Do you know the Muffin Man who lives in Drury Lane? The Muffin Man? The Muffin Man. Not much of a rhyme, is it? No, not really. Not compared to some of the other ones we've heard. So this popular nursery rhyme, The Muffin Man, which in the darker forums of true crime is also known as the Drury Lane Dicer. Ooh, nice to yeah. live off Drury, eh? You did indeed. Yeah, he did. Oh, well, maybe there's a, maybe mm. there's a link. So supposedly this nursery rhyme uh, originated as a caution to children, warning them to be aware of a baker turned serial killer who would entice his young victims by pulling a muffin down the cobblestone streets of London with a string. Uh, so in a widely shared TikTok video uh, posted in uh, January of 2021, self-proclaimed CEO of history Jack Williamson claimed that the song originated as a warning to children to avoid England's first true known serial killer and certainly the most forgotten. He said, so as you might have already learned, the Muffin Man was indeed a serial killer. He killed 15 children and seven rival pastry chefs. Uh, so apparently the Muffin Man did not appreciate the fierce competition uh, in his surrounding neighbourhoods. So he murdered seven other bakers. Or so the tale goes. He goes on to say, His name was Frederick Thomas Linwood and the children's song was made to warn small children and to help small children to identify the Muffin Man and catch his MO so that they could report him to authorities. 
His nickname, the Muffin Man, is actually a reference to how he committed the murders. By local folklore, it is said that Frederick would tie a muffin to a string, and as children tried to grab it, and again, I don't know how, how tight this grip is on the, uh, on the old muffin, he pulled the string, eventually luring the child to his house and giving him ample time to knock the child out with a wooden spoon. Well, yeah. Wooden spoons are quite light, aren't they? Yeah. Quite yeah. light. You'd have to hit them a lot. Yeah. yeah. Be there for days. Unless it's a big spoon. Really big yeah. wooden spoon. Yeah. However, the people often question whether these children actually died from being beaten with said wooden spoon or if he would kill them in a more sinister way. The darker rumour is that the Muffin Man would make his deliveries just like any other baker, but that he would lure children away from their homes by playfully offering them a, quote, special muffin that they had to find at his home. The kids, likely thinking that this was a fun game, would chase the Muffin Man, which led to the Muffin Man's bakery, where he would kill the children, but not before torturing them. So yeah, Muffin Man, 22 victims, which is uh, allegedly one more than uh, uh, Marianne Cotton. Um, But I must say, due to the lack of photographic, DNA, and even documented evidence at the time, please take today's interesting facts, like any good muffin, with a pinch of salt. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> Love. I can imagine, imagine the muffin uh, would fall apart quite easily down the cobbled streets, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I kind of think, if I, I was to guess, it's kind of a bit of a stranger danger story, isn't it? It's like the offering mm. of things to lure someone. But who knows? The muffin man could have been a thing. I mean, I lived off Jury Lane. You used to work in a bakery. Put us together. You got the muffin man. Yeah. Because yeah, Dan, 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 Dan would torture children. Oh, n- no. No, I'm just saying if like... If we're all free contributing to this story, I'm the lift off there. Doesn't work. To nope. be fair, that is the last part that's left. <laughs> yeah, missing piece, Dad. <laughs> how did how did the child snatcher in Wizard of Oz? Did he use string or did he just get them in the van? Hey, it's not in the Wizard of Oz, mate. What's he from? Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Sorry. Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah. Yeah. How did he do it? I think it was. I don't know. He had a little cage, didn't he? Yeah, I didn't know how he lured them in. The Pied Piper blew a little flute. Little kids to live in a cave oh. with him. Okay, yeah, wow. But yeah, the muffin, who knows? I've searched uh, the child snatcher and the first thing that's come up is a Channel 5 documentary called Manhunt, the terrifying true story of the child snatcher and it was Ooh. aired seven days ago. So maybe that's tonight's viewing pleasure. Maybe. Not pleasure, viewing, sorted. Back to the uh, episode. Ben Carter's Interesting Facts. Interesting Facts. And it is here that we move to the timeline of the Black Widow, Lady Rotten, Mary Ann Cotton. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Eighteen fifty-two. So as we go on, you're going to see there's a lot of uh, husbands, a lot of children that we're going to talk about. So um, we're going to try and make it as clear as possible with numbering them as we go because it does get a little bit confusing with this timeline so 1852 often referred to as husband number one in order to finally escape the grasps of a stepfather and the family home mary ann marries her first husband william mowbray so william was 26 years old at the time of their marriage and essentially um mary ann had met william she'd fell pregnant 
and obviously with the family being very religious uh, they wanted to get married in order to um, make this right so to speak um, he worked as a labourer at the time and the couple married on the 18th of July 1852 and spent a short while living together in Newcastle before embarking for Cornwall as William had landed himself a job there working for the railways so just a quick trigger warning we're going to be talking about miscarriages in this section here although this initially seemed like an exciting new life for Marianne death unfortunately followed her to Cornwall so Marianne was using her dressmaking skills at the time, making um, new clothes for the baby, very excited. Obviously, a new marriage, everything's looking rosy. So Marianne would wake up um, in the middle of the night with severe stomach pains. Um, and she would pull back the covers and she would see a loss of blood on the bed. And sadly, she would go on to lose her child. And so to put that into context, she got married to William initially because of this baby. Um, they were said to not have been the best couple they got together just because of this. It was the one thing that was bringing them together. So now she's stuck with her husband um, that she doesn't isn't particularly fond of. And yeah, she's lost the baby who she was very excited to have at the time. And this unfortunately um, wouldn't be the last time that Marianne would go through this. She was said to have got pregnant four to five times during the span and she would go on to lose the baby each time, um, which made it, you know, a lot of stress and, and strain on the couple. Um, it's not believed that she lost it by any other reason than natural causes. And this wasn't such an uncommon thing at the time. And so none of the children would survive and their deaths and names were never recorded. And at only 20 years old, Marianne had faced an unimaginable amount of grief. It's been theorised that from this moment that her mindset changes from caring to callous. So yeah, I mean, it's been it's been speculated whether during that time she learned how to disassociate, um, especially with losing her, you know, her babies at that time. Um, she learned how to kind of move away from that and kind of, yeah, grow a kind of hard shell and look mm-hmm. at death in a very different way. Yeah, the other the other theory that I saw about this, again, you have to kind of take it with a pinch of salt, but to play devil's advocate um, is that she intentionally caused this to happen through uh, the kind of, well, a fear or resentment to having children of her own based on the experience that she had in her early life, either due to her own childhood experiences or the experiences that she she had at the hands of the, the many children at the Potter home when she was a nursemaid. So, yeah, it's there's like anything i suppose there's a lot of conspiracies around this um but so she's already been for a great deal of trauma at this point and it's now that she perhaps devises a plan to to lash out as a result 1856 marianne and her husband managed to have one child whom they name margaret jane so potentially named after her mother or the sister that passed away uh, as a baby Trying to flee the grief that had succumbed to them in Durham, the family decided to resettle in Hendon, Durham County. Having to leave his railway job, although it's also speculated he did this intentionally to be to put more distance between himself and Marianne, William finds himself working initially as a fireman upon a steam vessel. Uh, so again, regular weeks away from the family home, extensive shifts. He um, he yeah he basically wanted to to put some distance there between him and Marianne. He also then started working in the mining. Industry industry which meant that Marianne is once again entrenched in the life she once so desperately tried to flee and again you you question maybe he also took on that work because he knew that meant he'd be you know away for extended periods of time September 1858 Marianne gives birth to a child named Isabella Jane trying to solidify her family Marianne and William then conceived more children and over the next couple of years the family would continue to grow yet death still shattered over the family on the 22nd of June, 1860, Mary Ann's first surviving child, Margaret Jane, died. Yet this baby name would be reused once more when on the 2nd of October, 1861, another child named Margaret Jane was born. It was not unusual in Victorian England to reuse names of the dead and give them to the living. One suggested reason for this is that the parents wished to honour and commemorate their family members through their children. 
Margaret Jane, Mary Ann and William's first daughter, had passed away under mysterious circumstances. She died a few weeks after her fourth birthday, with her death certificate stating that she died of scarlet fever and exhaustion. Though there is no direct evidence that Mary Ann was responsible, it is considered possible as she had once referred to Margaret Jane as a burden, and Margaret Jane was under her direct care whilst William was away with work. It is possible that Mary Ann was protecting herself from experiencing any further trauma from the four child deaths she experienced so far, ending Margaret Jane's life on her own terms. 6th of July, 1863. Mary Ann gives birth to a son named John Robert, but he would die within a year of his birth from supposed gastric fever. The child would constantly have a temperature, be crying in agony, and regularly have diarrhoea. Due to the family's lack of income at the time, it wasn't possible for Mary Ann or William to get the newborn to a doctor. And despite his condition, Mary Ann continued to feed her baby from a bottle, and the baby's pain did not subside. The baby's pain got so bad that he was screaming through each night, eventually falling asleep from exhaustion and doing the exact same once he woke. After several weeks of this, he would unfortunately succumb to his quote-unquote fever. During this time, Marianne starts to tell William that he should invest in a life insurance policy. As her family is growing, Marianne knows that it is important to protect them all in case the worst happens again. William decides to insure his family, but they would get a payout much sooner than expected. So a, a note to make about this baby John Robert's death, uh, his systems kind of mirrored exactly that of arsenic poisoning, um, which is a product that at that time was very easily obtained in terms of its availability and its low cost. So it was, yeah, it was found in a lot of different products uh, throughout the 1800s. Um, it was found quite obviously in, in rat poison. Uh, it could also be taken from certain cosmetics and found this quite interesting. Uh, it would also be used by chemists and paint makers in order to color wallpaper, which I, I did not know about. So apparently they would introduce arsenic to the wallpaper compounds in order to create vibrant new hues uh, to make like some nice yellows, I imagine. And despite its vivid and eye-catching nature, uh, doctors would eventually discover that the arsenic's wallpaper ink could flake and that this in turn could kill. Uh, so doses of all of this could very easily be dissolved in soup, coffee or tea, which I've mentioned just as Tom's taking a big old sip of tea, um, with the taste being little to no different when consumed. I can't taste anything. Oh, I'll see you. I'll see you later. Have a nice little sleep. 1865, almost three years have passed during this time. It is alleged that the couple continued to have babies that sadly passed away either at childbirth or shortly after. As we mentioned, this was not an uncommon occurrence in the 19th century, and child or infant death was not often viewed as suspicious. Working as a fireman on a shipping boat, or a coal stoker, and then also down the coal mines meant that William had been away from the family, with the exception of a few holiday visits, for almost seven years straight, which is a long time. Yeah. That's a, and I also thought as well the roles there. So obviously he was calling himself a fireman, which technically he was, but it was basically to look make sure the ovens stay okay on on a boat, like on the Titanic. All of them ones that unfortunately I never knew those. Yeah, that's interesting. They're called firemen, and then she was obviously a nursemaid, and that was essentially a babysitter, an au pair. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But what's the difference between an au pair and a babysitter? I guess you stay in the house, live in the house. Yeah. 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 A living nursemaid. Mm. Now an au pair. What's the difference between a a wet nurse and a Nursemaid. Uh, wet nurses deal with babies. They deal with them. Yeah, just sort of work generally with them. Okay. I don't know if I'm right. They would breastfeed. That's just that's just fact. It's not even me being weird. No, I know. Okay. You used to call them milky puddings, didn't you, Ben? 
<laughs> Marianne began to resent him for this, which is not really surprised being away for that long, as she had been left to raise the children by herself. Obviously, the raising element here is entirely questionable. Either way, her relationship with William was no longer feasible in her eyes. Yeah, that's a long but absent makes the heart grow fonder. I don't think they were ever really that fond of one another. I think no. it was a convenience that grew inconvenient. Absence makes you be able to tolerate the other person. And have lots of babies. I don't know. It's not as catchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marianne now finds herself far from her dream life of living well in the countryside, much like the Potter family that she had worked for, and is now in fact the wife of a coal miner. So the lifestyle she despised as a child, living a life quite similar to her mother's. Her grip on a lavish and affluent future is loosening, and she knows that she must act. William is sent home from the mines one day with a severe injury to the leg. This injury is one that would potentially compromise his ability to work and generate an income for the family. This infuriated Mary Ann, which is like, come on, Mary, just get off his case. He's injured his leg and he's been away for seven years. Come on. (laughs) Who now viewed him as completely useless and possibly a ticket for her and her two daughters to the workhouse. Despite all this, she takes naturally to the role of caregiver for William and begins to make him food and drinks while he rests and recovers. Unbeknownst to William, this food and drink had some of Marianne's key ingredients. As well as the injury to his leg, William began to experience symptoms very similar to that of his baby boy, John Robert. He was brought to tears by the agony of his stomach writhing in pain. He would maintain a fever for the next week and a half, the pain so bad the entire time that it eventually forced him into an exhausted sleep, providing momentary relief. Just two and a half years after taking out a life insurance policy for his family, William suddenly died from supposed typhus fever brought on by an intestinal disorder. Some people also suspect that he may have had, as well as the leg injury, uh, coal miner's lung disease from his time in the mines, and uh, Marianne is very quick to push this narrative. However, his body remains in the possession of his widow, who makes quick, inexpensive funeral arrangements. Marianne then goes on to claim £35 for the death of her husband, and back then this was roughly the equivalent to six months' wages for someone working as a labourer in the mines, and equates to roughly £3,560 in today's money. Just a month after William's death, no longer having a reason to stay in Hendon, Marianne used her insurance money to uplift her and her two daughters to Seam Harbour. Here, she opens her own dressmaking shop and felt like she would finally be within reach of the life that she had always dreamed of. Now, obviously, I say she opened her own dressmaking shop. Basically, it was a ground floor flat that she sold dresses out of from the front, not to belittle her shop. Sounds like you are. No. Well, I can do, actually, because... I can have a little bit. She is a baby killer, Ben. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Don't need to have everyone on side. I'm sure <laughs> people, <laughs> baby killers offended by you saying that. <laughs> oh, that Ben. Oh, <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a ground floor flat that she essentially operated a uh, dressmaking service from within. So with this, she'd settled, she'd relocated, she'd got rid of uh, husband number one, and now she plans on trying to generate an income that would give her the life she'd always dreamed of. However... Much like her early life, her new family would soon lose another member. Marianne notices that her cash flow is starting to dwindle and starts to consider the fact that she may not have enough resources to look after herself and her two daughters. As such, Margaret Jane, uh, the second Margaret Jane, slowly catches a fever. Margaret Jane would have an extremely high fever, constantly vomiting and constantly in pain. Marianne would become her daughter's carer, treating her with homemade medicinal teas and trying to feed her soup. 
which I imagine was also homemade. Uh, Marianne, perhaps realising that she now needs witnesses, now that she is on her own, calls doctors to her ground floor flat and begs them to try and help her daughter. And sadly, they make the diagnosis of typhus fever and estimate that she only has a few weeks left to live. Ben, if I just could interject here, I was just looking sure. at the, um, the symptoms of arsenic poisoning and just to kind of really highlight how horrible, like it kind of is implied that, you know, it's, you can't taste it really and all that stuff. It might be seen as you kind of, you know, it's a quite a subtle way of, of killing someone. But so acute um, poison is just a headache, severe diarrhea, vomiting, sometimes with blood, pain in the abdomen, metal or garlic taste, which is interesting one uh, chronic is partial paralysis numbness in hands or feet blindness seizures corns skin discoloration or thickening and also you can lose clumps of hair and basically you're not be able to kind of keep food down obviously so you're losing weight rapidly as well mm-hmm. so it's it is a really horrible horrible way to um see these people go and obviously she's she's yeah. in the theory caring for these people as well while she's doing it trying to be the good nurse but um she's basically putting them through horrible horrible suffering here for her own gain just to highlight that well that was that was it the first thing i started thinking of i don't know why i went here straight away but when when researching this was how much pain does this cause rats when rats are poisoned and there's a whole community of people that feel rat poison is inhumane and should not be used because basically it causes them to die of um, internal bleeding very slowly (sighs) So yeah, there's a, there's if you search it, there's a, a ton of websites, including the RSPCA, that that say you should not use uh, rat poison uh, because it basically causes the rodent to die slowly and painfully from internal bleeding, which is not nice. My friend who works at the Wood Green uh, Animal uh, Shelter now says because they have rats there, like as in like to to be adopted, and rats they need to go in like couples of pairs because they really like pack animals they like, love cuddling and being they're really apparently really quite sweet which i think rats rats have got really bad just got a really bad rep yeah same with pigeons i've got a fondness for pigeons but with not not that pig- sort of fondness but yeah I, I i look at them and smile that's it it stops there to be clear <laughs> no one was <laughs> suggesting anything other than that well that's all you're right you give you give them a bit of bread going you owe me now <laughs> tied to a string <laughs> running down the road uh. <laughs> The pigeon man. I'm covered in feathers. Because I'm trying to be a pigeon, not because... Oh, for fuck's sake. Please continue. Yes, yeah, sorry. So yeah, yeah, awful stuff about the arsenic and the, and the poisoning. So yeah, the doctors though, this is the thing, like, like Tom said, the, the symptoms here um, line up well with typhus fever, um, which is obviously how Marianne at the time was able to sort of glaze over the actual causes. And sadly, the second Margaret Jane draws her last breath, aged four, dying from supposed typhus fever. So at this point, um, if, if we're serious with the allegations, Marianne has murdered one husband and three of her children, two Margarets and one John, um, although they all could have allegedly died from typhus fever and, and one scarlet fever. Having now only one child to depend on her, Marianne puts Isabella under the care of her mother and now free of children, frighteningly, Marianne decides to begin work as an untrained fever nurse. She quickly became very well liked and very well regarded in her work and so she took advantage of her newfound reputation and identity. Whilst working at the Sunderland Infirmary, she became friends with a patient and this patient would go on to become her next husband. He was called George Ward and has often been referred to as husband number two. That's where they met. (laughs) And he viewed Marianne, basically the circumstances in which they met, 
he viewed her as his lifesaver. So someone that had nursed him back to health and, and as a result quickly fell head over heels for Marianne. So as we've mentioned, it was not uncommon in Victorian England for people to quickly remarry. And this was kind of on both sides of the fence, so to speak. This was mainly done out of necessity rather than for the love uh, of an individual, because at the time being unmarried placed a lot more burden on a person. Um, for example, if your wife died during childbirth, you would, uh, as a man that was out working, need a new wife to look after your children. Um, that was the case at the time. And if your husband died, you would lose a large amount of income, which meant that both genders often remarried hastily to secure their own futures. So George Ward actually had told Marianne that he was an engineer and he, he had a you know a big career, like he, he had lots of opportunities out there to kind of gain a lot of money, which obviously interested Marianne a lot. Um, which, uh, sadly for Marianne, sadly for George, he was he was actually telling some porky pies there, and uh, he wasn't an engineer. Um, and this would go on to very much anger Marianne after they had married. So George Ward was an engine driver. Not a huge amount was known about the union with Marianne. However, we do know they entered their relationship very quickly. We do also know that they did not conceive any children during their marriage. It was known that George was of poor health during and especially towards the end of the marriage to Marianne, and he had often noted symptoms of dizziness, nausea, and nosebleeds, which we know obviously are not too uh, far off the arsenic um, the arsenic symptoms. At the time, George was given the standard medical practice of bloodletting by leeches. Oh. <sighs> which, yeah. Not, not a nice thought. The leeches were used for the vast majority of ailments that a person could be prescribed with during Victorian England. A fun fact, uh, the bloodletting process was often conducted at a barbershop, and that is why you'll see red and white striped poles even today outside of some barbershops. The red symbolises the blood, and the white signifies bandages. The more you know. That's, that, is, that is really interesting, yeah. That was my trivia for this week as well. So, <laughs> so I'll claim that one. Yeah, that is interesting. But what signifies hair? Oh, we just do bloodletting in here. Why are you a barber? <laughs> do you want a leech? No, I want a fucking French crop cunt. Whoa. Um, no, he's annoyed me. Yeah, well, I know. However, even though Marianne had now had secured herself a new husband, her life was still monotonous. Although she had no children to care for, as Isabella was still under the care of her mother, she now had a husband who wished things from her. Becoming bored of her lifestyle, Marianne begins to engage in an affair with a married man named Joseph Natras, often referred to as lover number one. Mm. This seemed to be an entirely different story for Marianne. She was incredibly lustful for him and had fallen for him hard. Perhaps due to the fact that she knew, as he was a married man, that he was unattainable. The forbidden fruit, Benjamin. Yeah, yeah, I have heard about that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is very, very different. Obviously, she's, she's rushed into the majority of her relationships, um, as you could argue, had her mother. And uh, this is the first time that she's kind of had a... Maybe it was a meet-cute... Maybe. I mean, what are you basing that on? But because she's just, this is like an actual uh, mutual attraction by the sound of it. And maybe they sort of, maybe she, she was carrying books and he was carrying an orange juice and they crossed the corner and he accidentally got the orange juice on her. And then they were like, oh, I'll pick up your books. And uh, then they caught each other's eyes and wow, meet cute. Yeah, it could be. I just made that up. Yeah, I know. I know. It wasn't very cute. She watched a mess. Anyway, it was very different from the marriages that she had rushed into. She was very physically attracted and uh, yearning for Joseph Natras. Um, however, obviously, as he was supposedly happily married, uh, she knew that there wasn't uh, maybe an end goal there. So, Do you think she was rushing there? Because she wasn't going yeah, with these people for anything other than the gain of their insurance was she really like it so that was her plan it's like yeah whereas Joseph seems to be actually I quite like you and I'm not going to give you my soup or my teas 
1866, after continually slipping in and out of consciousness, George Ward enters a fever-induced coma that he would not wake up from for the following five days. For a lack of eating and exercise, George begins to waste away, eventually becoming so light that Marianne was able to lift his entire body up effortlessly. George died from cholera and typhoid fever just over a year into his marriage with Marianne on the 20th of October 1866. Once again, Marianne's status as a widow is reinstated and she is all alone. Needing stability and an income, Marianne becomes a nanny for a widowed man named James Robinson, who we'll uh, get on to some more information about, but he will also often be referred to as husband number three. So obviously all this time as well, she's become a wind... Fucking hell. Cover window. Window. <laughs> so in all this time, obviously, she's just lost George Ward. She's started working for James Robinson. Again, we'll, we'll talk uh, about him more shortly. And she's also continued this uh, long-standing affair with Joseph Natras, who she actually quite likes. So there's lots going on, and it's all happening very, very quickly. Uh, James Robinson, so this is the individual that uh, that Marianne starts working as a nanny for. Um, he had five children at the time of Marianne starting working for him. And in Marianne's eyes, she felt that James was the perfect new target. If she was able to work her way through his five children, which is a, a terrible thought, she would stand a chance at winning him over and either marrying him or becoming pregnant by him, locking her into the opportunity to claim life insurance over the five children as well as, eventually, James. So not long after Marianne's arrival and starting working uh, for the family as a nanny, the youngest of the children became extremely unwell and would actually later die from supposed gastric fever. So as soon as he appeared unwell, Marianne basically started acting as his caregiver and began to offer medicinal teas and, and soup. And again, the same pattern would follow a few weeks of absolute agony. And sadly, the young boy would pass away. Now, this family that she was working for is quite similar to when she worked for the Potters, uh, except they, these were based in Gateshead up near Newcastle. And uh, James's wife had recently died. Uh, making him a, a widower and James worked as a shipwright so he basically worked on building ships. A few days after the infant's death Marianne visits her mother as a result of receiving a letter from her stepfather informing her that her mother was extremely unwell. Now while she goes back to the family home and visits her mother she decides to steal a few items from her family. And shortly after doing this, her mother seems to realise that items are going missing in the house, so questions Marianne about uh, different items that have gone missing, and also prompts uh, the conversation to say, look, we've had Isabella for a good few years now, when are you, when are you taking her back? You've got, you've got a steady job now, are you able to take Isabella back into your custody? And obviously this makes Marianne extremely unhappy. So she begins to make medicinal teas and homemade soup for her unwell mother. Now, unlike her many other victims, Marianne's mother died very suddenly, and it, uh, it's speculated either way as to whether this was intentional on Marianne's part or whether she had little to no involvement because various sources state that her mother's death was a result of hepatitis, yet it is interesting to note that she complained of stomach pains in the brief moments before her passing away. Nevertheless, the death leaves Isabella once again in Marianne's possession. Marianne takes Isabella to, to basically to work with her now for the James Robinson family. So shortly after this, more of the Robinson children would fall ill and die whilst Marianne was caring for them and working at the house as a nanny. 
So when she returns to work for James Robinson, a lot happens in a very, very quick period of time here. So this is why a lot more people believe maybe her mother actually died of natural causes and that uh, Marianne was incredibly upset by this because she takes some very swift action here. So on the 21st of December, 1866, John Robinson dies. Uh, and again, this is as a result of gastric fever. Again, highly suspicious circumstances, was complaining of stomach pains in the week, building up to his death in absolute agony. And James Robinson Jr. would die on the 20th of April the following year in 1867. However, it is not just the Robinson children that would succumb to their deaths. Isabella, Marianne's own daughter, also died 10 days after James Robinson Jr. So at this point, Marianne has allegedly very quickly murdered two of James Robinson's sons, uh, John Robinson and James Robinson Jr., as well as perhaps her own daughter, Isabella Mowbray. Yes, I think her plan, yeah, was, as she mentioned, her plan was to kind of get into that household, um, dispose of the children, and then marry James, and then also have a child with him herself. So um, it seems to be uh, her plan, you know, usually is to get pregnant, which then puts pressure on the marriage to happen. And then she gets put into the will or the life insurance, and then she gets the money from that way. So um, it seemed that her mum was a bit of an inconvenience during her plan. She was in, she's primed and ready to kind of attack this family, so to speak. She had to go home, look after her mother, uh, which, you know, that was mysterious how, you know, she would end up passing away over that time. But then, um, yeah, her having to bring Isabella back into the picture, she wasn't happy about that. And she, she dealt with that fairly promptly as well. Um, August 1867, Mary marries James Robinson while she is five months pregnant. Although it was made explicitly clear by James's three sisters that they did not agree with the union between the pairing. James also faced the societal expectation of having a child out of wedlock. The baby would be born in November, but would live for only three months before she drew her last breath. And no surprise there that that death was also under mysterious circumstances. 1869, another Robinson child is born, George Robinson, who was born on the 18th of June, 1869. Yet this child was born into a broken home as Jane soon discovered that Mary was stealing from him by altering amounts in his building society books. Marianne was able to take around £50 from James, and this is more money than she received from her first life insurance claim from the death of her first husband. Some sources claim that she took this money to fund a gambling addiction, but there's no verified truth within this claim. When James found out that his wife had taken such a vast amount of money from him, he kicked her out. So Marianne was spared of her child George, as he remained under the care of James Robinson. By removing this woman from the family unit, James and George presumably saved their lives, and they didn't even know it. Yeah, that's a scary thought. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's the, it's the thing is that you think on paper, you go, someone moves into your house as caregiver, then suddenly, you know, three of your children, four of your children pass away relatively quickly. You, you think, oh, you put one on one together, but you just think that it was so common in those days for, for children to pass away. I mean, it wasn't, and you know, with those kind of illnesses going around the household, it, you know, it wouldn't be, he wouldn't put that together, but it, it seems so simple from our side of things. Look at things going, why yeah. wouldn't you think that was, that was suspicious? So when the headlines eventually come about Marianne, he will be surely a very relieved man. Yeah. So March of 1870, and this is kind of 10, 11 months after she is kicked out, Marianne is without her husband once more. And whilst she's trying to find her feet, she decides to move in with a friend named Margaret Cotton. And this is where she meets her next husband and the person who would give her her infamous last name. She meets 
Frederick Cotton. So Frederick Cotton was actually a widower with two small children, and he was actually the brother of Mary Ann's new housemate. However, this pairing would be very short-lived, as just three weeks after Mary Ann's arrival, Frederick's sister Margaret turns up dead. Her cause of death is listed as a stomach ailment. It is thought that she had told Marianne that she had saved over £60 and with nobody expecting her brother to claim her inheritance, Marianne took the opportunity to kill once more. And uh, so basically, yeah, so, uh, so Frederick would go on to inherit his sister's uh, £60 and obviously there were very few questions asked as she's completely relocated. She's again, she's able to... Did we say maybe she was a bit of a shapeshifter at the start of the episode? I think I mentioned the word Carmelian, but that didn't really work in the context of the conversation we were having. But yes, she's basically able to very quickly establish herself in new locations and build up these identities of her, of her own. Uh, so yeah, very quickly now she's seen that this woman has £60 and acted on it immediately. So a really interesting moment of the case now, um, with all of this going on, at the exact same time, Marianne's ex-lover, uh, Joseph Natras moves in on the exact same street as her and unsurprisingly Marianne and Joseph resume their affair. It is not long before this that Marianne falls pregnant once again and again with the social pressures of having a baby out of wedlock and presuming the baby is his Frederick decides to marry Marianne. This is when now she becomes Marianne Cotton. Yet it is important to note that Marianne at this point had never divorced James Robinson. Mm. So it all gets a bit complicated here once again so she's obviously been kicked out of the home by james robinson but they've not had an official divorce she's obviously met and now married frederick cotton but the affair that she started several years before with joseph natras now has resumed and it's it's unclear as whether frederick or joseph is actually the father of this baby that she's now pregnant with but she heavily believes that it's uh, joseph that's got her pregnant i mean with all the little flames she's got going on ben it's turned into a roaring fire it really is 1871 Marianne's child, Robert Robson Cotton, is born at the beginning of the year. Yet Frederick would not spend a vast amount of time with his son, as just after a year into his marriage with his wife, he dies of supposed typhoid fever and hepatitis. I know we keep having to say supposed, but um, this is what is down on their medical records as what was the reason they passed away. But me and you, listener, we know the mm. truth. Prior to this, the family moved to West Auckland, and this is where Frederick worked in a coal mine. It seems as though he was in good health during his first initial months working in the mine, but on the 20th of September, he was dead. So the thing about this is, Marianne keeps throwing this boomerang away, going, I don't want to be a coal miner's wife. <laughs> <laughs> and that fucking boomerang, it keeps coming back again yeah. every time. But then, is she, is she maybe, although she's saying that that's not what she wants, that's the last thing she wants, is she also maybe thinking, actually, the mortality rate for coal miners at the time, there's a lot of accidents, mm. there's obviously the coal miners' lung disease going around. True. Maybe I can blend in a bit there. That is true, yeah, maybe, yeah. I don't know. That is true, but the only thing is, in regards to her payday, she yeah. knows she's not going to get a great deal from, from that, whereas... Her bigger victim, she was planning like um, Mr. Robinson. Uh, that was the big payoff that she wanted, but she wasn't quite able to uh, to manage that. So yeah, you're right. That could be a bit of a, a bit of a thinking there. It's kind of a her temporary fix here and there. So Marianne soon moves in with her lover Joseph, Joseph Natras. Uh, yet, just like all of her other husbands, she soon finds him boring. Mm. So the idea of him, you know, she's like, this is the guy for me. But sadly, he wasn't. To deal with her boredom, Marianne reuses her skills as a nurse and finds herself a job at a hospital. This is where she goes on to meet her next victim, John Quick Manning, often referred to as Lover Number Two. 
So John was a patient at the hospital. He was suffering from smallpox and he works as a tax official. The two start to engage in a relationship and this relationship does leave Marianne pregnant. Yet the love affair does not last long as John simply refuses to marry Marianne and then he leaves for Middlesbrough. So I'm not sure if he smelt a rat there, but um, mm. he was like, this isn't, doesn't feel quite right for me. So he leaves Marianne and he moves over to Middlesbrough. It is interesting to note that John Quick Manning has never been found on any birth, death or census records. It is thought that John may have actually been named Richard, and it, so um, yeah, Dick Quick Manning, and it is known that Richard Quick Manning worked as a customs and excise man specialist in, in breweries. Mm-hmm. A quick brew with Quick Manning. So between 1871 and 1872, uh, Marianne and Frederick Cotton go on to have another son who is named Fred Cotton Jr. Um, and again, there are there are obviously she's maintaining two different affairs at this point. So John Quick Manning and Joseph Natras. It, it's a very complex dynamic. But unfortunately, on the 10th of March 1872, Mary's son Fred Cotton Jr. died unsurprisingly of gastric fever. And within the same month, sadly, Robert Robson Cotton also died of gastric fever and convulsions. Then a few days after the death of her sons, Mary Ann's lover dies. Joseph Natras died on the 1st of April from typhoid fever. So obviously at this point, uh, both of her children with Frederick Cotton have uh, have died very quickly and very suddenly of gastric fever. And then just a few days after the death of her sons, Mary Ann's lover, Joseph Natras, also dies and he died on the 1st of April from typhoid fever. All of these deaths in in very quick succession, so you're looking at kind of three or four weeks, meant a significant payout for Marianne and as a result she collected £37. So obviously as we mentioned when Marianne met Frederick he already had two children and obviously now the two children she's conceived with him have both died of uh, gastric fever under very suspicious circumstances Uh, and then the additional child has also now died. The only current surviving child is Charles Cotton yet it is clear that Marianne did not want him and had planned for his death. After attempting to send Charles off to a workhouse, um, obviously now being a widow once again, Marianne was told that this would not be possible. And after remarking that her son was weak, she apparently then told Thomas Riley, who was in fact actually the assistant coroner for West Auckland, that, I quote, won't be troubled long, he'll go the same way, just like the rest of the Cotton family. Charles would later die of gastric fever in July of 1872. So yeah... That's not something I would, if I was in her shoes, say to an assistant coroner. No, it seems it seems unwise, but maybe she's feeling a bit invincible at this point because she's got away with it for so long. Um, so Mr. Thomas Riley starts to suspect Marianne, which yeah, is not a big leap there. We must remember that Marianne was consistently moving from area to area, and with each move came a new surname. So people would not have been suspicious of her considering they did not really know her or know her past. So it's not really a big surprise that someone has just become concerned of of her presence. So Thomas Riley shares his fears with Charles Cotton's GP and a local police sergeant named Sergeant Hutchinson. And as a result, the GP, Dr Kilburn, refuses to issue a death certificate till further analysis is done. This means that when Marianne attempts to collect her life insurance money, she receives a nasty shock. A post-mortem and an inquest are conducted. The post-mortem is conducted by Dr. Kilburn within the Cotton household. It reveals that something unknown did kill Charles, but it was not suspicious. Therefore, he states the death as natural, but he does take test samples so that he can conduct some further analysis, as Thomas Riley was persistent and believed that foul play had resulted in the deaths of so many surrounded Mary Ann Cotton. 
Dr. Kilburn then conducts a common method for the tests of arsenic. So yeah, I mean, Thomas Riley has done a good job here. Um, and he's very persistent. So this test is called the Reinsch test. And according to Chemwatch, during this test, a strip of copper is placed in the suspected fluid, which is then acidulated with hydrochloric acid and boiled. If arsenic is present, a grey deposit occurs on the copper, and this deposit on heating is supplemented and deposited as a crystalline layer on a piece of glass held above the copper strip. So yes, it's uh, a test they're doing essentially to see if any arsenic is present, and these tests show that there are strong indicators of arsenic poisoning. Therefore, Dr. Kilburn decides to send off the test for further toxicology analysis, and after being tested in Leeds, these results confirm that Marianne's stepchild did die from arsenic poisoning. Following this revelation, Marianne Cotton is arrested the next day and taken to Durham Prison. Think about that, though. Surely you could, you could just say, with, with arsenic being so present in other things, yeah, that it wasn't her that did it, but I guess, if, yeah. But you're right, though. This, this Thomas Riley and Dr. Kilburn are, are absolutely vital in this case because, as you said, she could have put it down to anything and continued doing what she did. I mean, at this point, she's given birth to 12 children and had four different husbands, two different lovers, and um, she could have kept doing this for years and years if it weren't for these two men. Um, so yeah, it's quite a, quite an important part of the case. However, we must highlight that the room that the test was conducted in was a room lined with green wallpaper. In Victorian England, this type of wallpaper was doused in arsenic. This does mean that there is a small chance that the test may have shown positive results for arsenic because a piece of wallpaper had contaminated the sample. Arsenic was also used when washing bed linen, so again, we cannot state that this test was 100% accurate. Nevertheless, with the confirmation of at least one of the deaths being from arsenic poisoning, three more bodies are exhumed and tested. These were the bodies of Robert Robertson Cotton, Frederick Cotton Jr. and Mary Ann's lover, Joseph Natras. And these tests confirmed that these people had also been victims to arsenic poisoning. January 1873. Whilst Mary Ann Cotton is residing in prison, it becomes public knowledge that she is pregnant. And this was actually a common occurrence, uh, like, like many things in this episode, during this time period. Pleading the belly was when a woman would get pregnant and this would bide her time and not allow her to be sentenced to death until her child had been born. I'd be interested to hear if that, if that even, something like that would happen today. Pleading the belly. Mm. Pleading the fifth, pleading the belly. Between the 14th and the end of the 19th centuries, English women facing capital punishment had the option to plead the belly, in brackets, to request a delay or commutation of a sentence because they were pregnant. So at this point, yeah, she's trying to extend any kind of sentencing. Um, it's looking highly likely that she would be sentenced to death at this point anyway. And um, as a result of it becoming public knowledge that she's pregnant, uh, this causes a slight delay. Journalists become fascinated with the case and begin to heavily research into the real Mary Ann Cotton. So at the time, uh, obviously, news travels across the country about this woman that has committed a vast number of murders by poisoning uh, husbands and children, and it becomes a big, big sensationalised story across the country. Journalists become fascinated with the case and begin to heavily research into the real Mary Ann Cotton. And obviously, at this point, she's lived in all these different parts of northern England. She's had all these different surnames and identities. So it is a difficult job at that point to kind of gather all these different bits of information. The press did did not show mercy for Marianne Cotton. Just like today, people could not comprehend a child murderer. The media made sure that the whole of the UK knew Marianne Cotton was a murderer. It even became common for parents to scaremonger their children into behaving by saying that Marianne Cotton would catch them if they did not behave. And this is likely obviously where the nursery rhyme came from. Uh, and yeah, and this is there's, there's photos of her that were, were publicised in the very, I think there's literally one photo. 
yeah, you can imagine that James Robinson finding out about all of this and being absolutely mortified. Following the uh, law regarding pleading the belly, Marianne's trial was postponed for six months. During this time, Marianne tried to rewrite her story. She wrote to family and friends and pleaded to them that she was not the ruthless killer that the press were trying to make her out to be. Marianne Cotton's child would be born on the 7th of January, 1873. Have you, uh, Dan, have you seen a picture of Marianne Cotton? I have not, no. Ben, ben was saying how she found her quite beautiful and alluring. I'd be interested to see your opinion. Okay. Did I say that? I think you said like a lot of times she's alluring and beautiful. Oh, in the episode. Yeah. <laughs> oh fuck! What? <laughs> as a kid, as a kid, she was described as it. Oh, that's right. You thought she was hell as a kid then. But not. Her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Terrible. You've got to laugh. March eighteen seventy three. Two months after Marianne gave birth, her trial began, and it was noted that she was still breastfeeding her newborn at the time of the trial. She made a commotion and wept when the baby was taken from her, which did cause some people to question whether the baby should be detached from her mother. Oh yeah, her track record's great. Yeah, it's like, oh, keep her alive. Let her give us some soup. Huh? Um, so Marianne Cotton was defended by Thomas Cavill Foster, who declared that Charles had been surrounded by wallpaper that was doused in arsenic. It had been noted that during the time period, wallpaper could contain up to 25 grams of arsenic per square foot. So this theory is somewhat probable. Yeah, I mean, they were going there. I guess it's kind of like... In in our days, um, asbestos, asbestos, exactly similar kind of thing, but I guess arsenic is a lot, lot worse. Um, a chemist from a pharmacy in Newcastle was brought in to testify against Marianne. Enter Thomas Detchen, um, and he basically would go on to say about um, Marianne, "I'm an assistant chemist to Mr. William Owen of Newcastle on Time. I remember a woman four years ago coming to my master's shop between 2 and 3 p.m. on January 21st of 1869 and asking for three pennies worth of soft soap and arsenic. She gave her name as Marianne Booth, and that is the person who I see in the prisoner's dock. So yes, um, mm. quite quite damning from Thomas there. Um, it was also used in evidence during the trial that Marianne was abusive toward her stepson. Eyewitnesses had claimed to see this abuse, and on top of this, a judge seemingly already thought she was guilty. And as a result, Marianne was found guilty for the murder of Charles Cotton. Ultimately, Marianne Cotton would be sentenced to death by hanging. So on the 24th of March, 1873, at 7.55am, Marianne Cotton was executed at Durham Jail. She had a leather belt attached to her waist and her hands were restrained. She was then marched to her death and placed upon a trap door. Marianne Cotton's hanging is notorious. Her hangman was a weak man in his 70s named William Calcroft. He was known for misconducting hangings. Retire. Retire. Yeah, come on. He's like, I just love it. I just love hanging people. When I hang out the rope, that's when I, you know, I just... <laughs> I like to keep busy. You know, I just want to keep my hands busy, busy minds. <laughs> um, he was known for not correctly, he was known for not correctly tying the rope around the person's neck. It's not, William, that's the wrist. Oh, give over, would you? This would cause them to have a prolonged death. And that's exactly what happened to Marianne Cotton. It took her three minutes to die. And even after the hangman pushed on her shoulders to quicken the process, which I've never heard that before. Mm. Oh, one minute. Um, just gets a, just gets a chair. Oh, she was then left to swing for an hour. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that I've gone quite quickly for feeling bad about criticizing her dressmaking shop to then laughing at this at her bodged her bodged death. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, to be honest, it couldn't happen to a nicer woman. But um, yeah, that is. If he's known for being she's <laughs> hanging as well, take him off it. 
Maybe just yeah. Maybe just let him. He can hit do the trapdoor like oh, pull it. Wow. But just don't do the ropes. Yeah, William Calcraft has got his uh, his own story, his own history here, and he is known as one of the most prolific of British executioners. Mm. It is estimated in his forty five year career, he carried out over four hundred and fifty executions, some of which may have may have been botched. And then, ironically, he would hang on to long to the job. When he, was, when he was past it. So yeah, all in all, a minimum of 21 victims to include three of her husbands and at least 12 of her children. Um, said to have been the most prolific British serial killer before Harold Shipman. So we're going to move on to some aftermath now. Despite the amount of people it is alleged that she killed, Marianne Cotton never confessed to any of the murders. Whether she did kill up to 21 people is a secret that died with her. Since her story gained infamy, people have been fascinated with the motives that led to Marianne Cotton to allegedly kill so easily. Being called a black widow by many, she has been dubbed in history as Britain's first serial killer. But what could have led her to live such a prolific life of crime? And guys, <laughs> I was just thinking with black widows, I was like, oh, that's a bit horror, isn't it? Yeah. I was like, but they are interesting, those little creepy crawlies. And uh, I thought, let's get some terrific trivia on the guy. Dan, go on then. <laughs> Tommy's trivia. <laughs> That's terrific. Yes, mine's mine's quite short and sweet this week, um, much like the the creatures, the spiders, but not the ones I'm about to cover. I'm going to talk about some. I just thought some trivia. Some I thought you guys might want to learn about some interesting, weird little spiders that are out there. Can I just say I really fucking hate spiders? So yeah, same. So there's a trigger warning to Dan Ben and probably a lot of people listening to this. That we're talking about. Yeah, that's fair enough. I've given them cute little names, but I have I have used a, an article by Live Science, so I can't take all the credit here. Um, the first one uh, called the Poopy Spider. I thought maybe a bit Ben themed. Poopy okay. Spider. Yeah. Um, AKA the Orb Web Spider. Um, I'll try and say the actual official name, but this you know, it's always written a bit weird. Cyclosa Ginaga. So yeah. Um, as I said, I might have murdered that, 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 that Um So they're the true masters of camouflaging themselves in ways that you wouldn't really want to look at. They're silver-bodied and they have white decorations on their web. Um, so they make a little like an orb and they use things like... So basically they make themselves a little bit look like bird poo on their web. And they do this by using um, things such as the, the carcasses of their prey, egg sacs, plant matter or silk. So they're like, oh, I don't want to be eating. I'm going to make myself look a bit like poo. So it's yeah. a good way, good way of protecting yourself there. Yeah, advice if you know if if it, if someone's trying to kill you, isn't that that is a, a prison defense mechanism, isn't it? Go on, make yourself as unhygienic as possible so you don't get attacked. Oh, but you're not in prison. No, um, just just heard about that. Oh, okay. It doesn't really look like poo. It looks like a little frog. If you ask me, but hey, it's the poopy spider. And the next one, um, I've called the uh, big boy spider. Um, it's the South American Goliath bird eater. Ooh, bird I don't down. want to Google this. Theraphosa blundi from Guana. Oh, fuck off. So this mammoth spider's leg span can reach nearly 12 inches, Ooh. 30 centimetres, or about the size of a child's forearm, and can weigh about the same as a puppy. That is insane. Yeah, that's making me feel a bit sick. You'd probably hear this monster coming as researchers have described the clicking noises of his feet, similar to horses' hooves hitting the ground. Oh, fuck off. And if you hear this, it's probably a good idea to run because the Goliath's 0.8 inch long centimetre fangs can issue a nasty bite. I bet they're quick as well, aren't they, looking at them? Yeah. Some spiders are slow. But um, you, you're still just starting to watch the Harry Potter, aren't you, Ben? So, the Harry Potter. Um, so there's a, there's a, good, a yeah. good old film of that where you'll see some spooky spiders as well. Last one, bit of fun. The 
calling it the boner spider. Um, the Brazilian wandering spider um, has venom that can stimulate an erection in a man that lasts for hours. Oh, boner spider. I thought you said bonus. No, 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 no. Boner spider. So unfortunate patients experience an overall increase in blood pressure and an increase in the amounts of hydric oxide in the body, which sets in motion an erection. So there you go. Although it's not comfortable for the poor soul who gets bitten, these spiders can provide some valuable insights and possible advances into erectile dysfunction research. So there you go. Rather than a little blue pill, why not a little spider, a little Brazilian mm. spider in your pocket? Go, come on, pal, give me a bite. Next thing you know, night, night. Um, so there you go. That's the, <laughs> that's my terrific trivia. Just the three spooky spiders for you boys, but now I know Dan's yeah. not into spiders. I've probably lost, but there you go. Well done, Tom. Nice one. Yeah, that's terrifying. That, uh, Goliath one. Boom. Yeah. A little puppy spider. Don't think I'll be going to Guana. Daddy. Tommy's trivia. <laughs> That's terrific. Yes. So obviously, um, you know, I've covered spiders, which Dan famously doesn't like. And Ben's covered a paedophile, which Dan's famously quite interested oh. in watching videos about. So I think the, the thing is written on the wall here. More clarification about those videos, please. <laughs> Can't deny stings. That. You like stings. I like stings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's make that clear. I like stings on Facebook. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry to say then you're back on track you got a point oh, buddy well done that, mate. well done maybe I can rehire some of my team well done sport thanks man I needed that good job I really good job. both that. good job today but um, yeah you, you took the edge Ben uh, I'm t- uh, yeah I'm still terrified of the, uh, the the poo spider and well mainly the gargantuan goliath spider because that is if you can hear it coming oh yeah So there have been multiple hypotheses put out there by people who have studied the case. Did her father's death cause her to slowly snap? Did the fact that she decided to kill her mother suggest that there was unrest within the relationship prior to this event? The death of her father would have caused significant financial strain on the family and perhaps her mother's remarriage taught her to disregard her own feelings surrounding marriage and death. Of course, many people have lost their fathers and have not taken the route that Marianne Cotton is alleged to have taken, but it still remains a common theory. People have actually analysed the method of murder that Marianne used. Arsenic allows the murderer to not even touch their victim. It is described as a detached method of murder. It allows the assassin to walk away before their victim has succumbed to their fate. Marianne Cotton has been described as a psychopath. It is clear that she had a certain amount of greed that could not be fulfilled by any of her husbands or suitors, and sadly, not by her own blood. She was superficially charming, which allowed her to prey upon her victims, and furthermore, she was a woman, and it is well known that people struggle to see women as killers, as it is meant to be ingrained into their nature to be caring. And yeah, as I know we didn't get too many quotes, unfortunately, in this week's episode, but she was described as a very attractive, um, very uh, alluring individual. And perhaps that's another reason why no one suspected Marianne for such a long time. But it's also important to note that maybe she did not kill as many people as it is reported she did kill. And maybe there were some accidental deaths involved in the timeline we've just been through. Obviously, she would deny uh, for many, many years that she was a killer and that she was responsible for any of these people dying. And as described, the tests they conducted were flawed at the time. And there is a lot of room within this case for human error, especially when these tests were conducted by multiple people. Marianne Cotton is now immortalized in history and she is known commonly by by the nursery rhyme that you heard at the beginning of this episode uh, and it was specifically created for her and, and now Tom obviously in a very spooky manner is going to play us out with the full rhyme itself the full rhyme uh, for anyone who doesn't know what black puddens is it's essentially um, a 
sausage made from pig's blood and other spices. So black pudding. Um, okay. Dan, are you going to put some like little like janky music under me when I do it? Definitely. Mary mm. Ann Cotton, she's dead and she's rotten. She lies in her bed with her eyes wide open. Sing, sing, oh sing, what can I sing? Mary Ann Cotton is tied up with string. Where, where, up in the air, selling black puddings a penny a pair. Mary Ann Cotton, she's dead and forgotten. She lies in the grave with her bones all rotten. Sing, sing, oh what can we sing? Mary Ann Cotton is tied up with string. And there are obviously, I mean, that was fantastic, by Thanks the way, so but there, there are also some uh, further versions, uh, one in particular, uh, one in particular, which ends on a slightly more crude note uh, and is still passed around, uh, oh. apparently still passed around on school playgrounds, wow. uh, which uh, particularly in northern regions, which includes the following verse. Do we get to hear a creepy Ben's version? Oh, oh yeah, I, I can do, I can do the, obviously the more crude version that kind of is in my nature, isn't it really? Mary Ann Cotton, she's dead and forgotten. She lies in her coffin with her finger up his bottom. Oh, you've changed it. <laughs> he did him. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know? Tom's done Ben. Come back next time for another Tom does Ben. <laughs> what does it say? Her bottom or hit my bottom? Her. Fuck's sake, man. Brilliant. I think it's as well. Very similar to my rendition, Ben. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, uh, sorry. I can do it. I can do different. So I'll do more. Yeah, it's very inspired by Tom. So yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's a bit like his trivia. Um, <laughs> Mary Ann Cotton. She's dead and forgotten. She lies in her coffin with her finger up her bottom. There you go. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Less for me to work with. Yeah. Mary Ann has also been portrayed <laughs> on TV. In 2015, Dark Angel, an ITV production, showed the life of Mary Ann Cotton. The show starred Joanne Froggart as Mary Ann. I think she's in Downton. Is it Downton? Or one of those fancy historical shows? Period drama. Period drama, sorry. A fancy historical show. <laughs> She's in Downton Abbey yet? Yeah. And the book, Marianne Cotton, Britain's First Female Serial Killer, by David Wilson, inspired the adaptation. But yes, that is the case of the Black Widow, Lady Rotten, Marianne Cotton uh, case for today. It's, yeah, a very dark one. Very dark one. But it was mm. it was good to travel back in time. Yeah. And we'll be back again next week with a brand new case. Hold the fucking phone. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, yeah. We've got a fucking riddle to figure out. Ben, did you um, just so I know? Did you figure it out? Because I think Tom was instantly there. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I, I was honestly fixated on your jingle, so I'd hazard a guess. Um, it was something to do with a man goes to bed at night having drowned 115 people. Was it something like that? Dan's riddle, sly and mischievous grim. Twist and turn, a mind game to win. Puzzles are plenty, a chuckle or two. A laugh and thought, we find our clue. Riddles! A man goes to sleep after an exhausting long day of work. He turns off all the lights and goes to sleep. When he wakes up, he finds out that he's killed 105 sailors. He does not sleepwalk and has slept all night without waking up once. Tom, how is this possible? He's a lighthouse keeper. Yes. Did you just figure out then too as well, Ben? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well done, well done. There you go. It's, it's a good one. It's a good one. A fun, is, yeah, these are great. Yeah. I do enjoy them. Well, I mean, 150 people die of uh, the, the reckless actions of uh, a lighthouse keeper turning out all the lights. All in all, uh, uh, Marianne Cotton, 21 victims, it's alleged, including three of her husbands and at least 12 of her children. A lot of uh, similarities between her and Nanny Doss. Uh, Nanny Doss, five husbands that she killed, and Marianne Cotton, four husbands. So it's close. It was close. And, uh, yeah, she was the most prolific British serial killer before Harold Shipman. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, this is a fascinating case. I don't know how this one has slipped through our net for so long. Well, there's some big cases that still slip through the net, mate. 
Yeah, that's true. Which I'm sure we'll see some of them bubble up when it comes to the vote eventually. But yeah, we'll leave that to you guys to decide. But um, if you guys just can't wait for next week's episode, we have 124 yeah. minisodes, and some of them aren't very many, <laughs> no. over on our website, icmap.co.uk. And they're available in visual as well as audio, so you can listen to them on the go, or you can sit in, in a comfy jumper and watch them while we'll having a cup of tea and a slice of toast. Yeah, we just recently <laughs> covered the on-air death of Christine Chubbuck, um, and we, we, you know, we're adding new episodes to that every single week. And also, if you fancy it, um, obviously just listening and uh, sharing our podcast, it means the world to us. But if you do uh, fancy joining as a prestige member of our cult over on icmap.co.uk, you not only get these episodes early on a Friday, but we will be live streaming for the Prestige members on our website on August the 29th at 8pm. And it's going to be a whole hell of a lot of fun. Um, so if you if you do fancy it, why not head over there today and join the gang? And we're going to be doing um, some role play, aren't we guys? Oh yeah, forgot about that. Some Dungeons oh, and Dragons. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah, created by our lovely uh, cult member Kit. So very excited for that. So you guys, if you want to hear us enter into a different world, then be sure to join us for that. And we still have nine big cases to come this series, including the audience vote, as Tom mentioned. So if you aren't already, make sure you're following us on the socials, which is at Could Murder a Pod. We've got Insta, we've got Twitter, we've got Facebook, we've got Freds, we've got pretty much those things that I just mentioned. So mm. why not give us a little follow and come and say hello to us on there? And yes, guys, if you have a, if you have a spare minute, you listen to us on Spotify or, or on iTunes. Why not give us a little review on there, a little like on there, um, a subscribe? It'd be very much appreciated. That's more than you'll ever know. But we'll be back again next week with a brand new case. And until then, like we always say, we say this all the time: keep doing what you're doing. Um, unless it's uh, making certain soups and teas. <laughs> yeah. Spending all day down the mine for one twenty-five is no. That I seems mean, snobby. That seems yeah, snobby. Very yeah, snobby. No, they don't no, have a choice. Yeah, don't put that in. That's um, in. That's maybe. No, in. no, no. That no, no, has no, to. No. Different time. A record um, for it. No, don't be mm. in Hessian sacks like that. Well, don't um, be putting Hessian sacks when you're dead. No, I'm doing. I'm really on a bad run here. Uh, don't be going wow. to sleep with a bonus spider in your pocket unless you need it. And make sure they're in a. Make sure you look after them. Don't follow a muffin down a road. Yes. All right. Until yeah, next time. Yeah. Two pip. Oh. Jesus, that's in sacks. Sorry. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Take care. I'll keep that first one in then. Has to. Just like, don't be poor. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck's sake. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.